Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Joseph Sim. And this is a pretty nerdy podcast, but today it's one of our nerdiest yet. Uh, that's because we're talking to Drew Seaman, who spent four years at Sierra Club, most recently as the Senior Director of Digital Fundraising, where his team oversaw digital fundraising, advertising, website optimization. And in August, actually, he joined Crow Metrics as the Director of Program Management. So Crow is a website optimization firm that works with nonprofits like Sierra Club, as well as UNICEF and some others, and some corporate clients like DoorDash and Tory Burch. So he's got a deep background in optimization and testing, and that's what we talk about today. We start with a short conversation on kind of cultural ingredients and some of what he learned while being a part of Sierra and that rich culture of testing. And then we actually go through a few different experiments and case studies that he was a part of while he was at Sierra Club, trying to understand what did they learn and what does it mean for other organizations and how do we learn about donor donors at large. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I know I very much did. And thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Drew. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So when we started to book this interview, you were actually in a different role. You were actually working for Sierra Club, uh, and now you've moved on to Crow Metrics. Um, if you're able to, I'd love to know what was that kind of process like or decision-making process or why the change? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'd been at Sierra Club for a little over four years. And uh, you know, one of the things that got me really excited about Sierra Club was that it, at the time when I started, I had two million members and supporters. Now it's over three and a half million. Um, and I think a lot of what made me excited there was kind of the scale and the opportunity to gr- for growth because there there is just such a large audience that there's there's a lot of opportunities to test and innovate. Um, and you know what I really what I really found is then the ability to dig into a lot of stuff like this website optimization side of things. And you know really what I've looked through throughout my career is the, the idea of untapped potential. And so 2007 started doing email fundraising and digital advertising, mm. a very different time for both. <laughs> Facebook advertising didn't exist. Um, email marketing, if you're emailing your audience more than twice a week, people thought you're really spamming people. <laughs> uh, so a little bit has changed. Uh, and it's uh, kind of no secret today that we're at the point where there's dozens of agencies focused on nonprofit email marketing, digital advertising. And so it's really kind of looking at where that untapped potential was. And so what I saw at Sierra Club was that on the website optimization side, we were seeing like 5x plus return on investment uh, on everything from donations to email acquisition. And it seemed like a place for real impact that there's not enough being done. So I'm really excited about it. Crow is um, I'm able to take my kind of political and nonprofit experience and kind of combine it with their engineering and optimize these skills that they're bringing from the for-profit side so that hopefully we're able to do something that and support nonprofits in ways that you know hasn't really been done at the scale it should be so far. Awesome. That's a that's a great answer and summary. Appreciate that. Well, I was uh, really excited to to talk to you because you know the purpose of this podcast is you know we we get outside of our own bubble and talk to different people from their different perspectives and what they're learning, and uh, that's all great. But what's cool about this conversation is we're kind of in the same bubble, you know, mm-hmm. optimization and testing. So um, I'm quickly going to kind of expose myself at how little maybe I know, but this will be a great way to dive deep with someone else who's also doing some rigorous testing. And uh, I want to cover some specific tests that you were a part of at Sierra Club and kind of walk through those because I think that's interesting. But before we get to that, 
the biggest thing that I've seen, uh, you know, holding nonprofits back isn't really that they can't test or don't know how to test or don't have the tools to test or don't have the volume, although all of those are real, you know, issues that they have to solve. There's this kind of this cultural element that doesn't seem to really buy into the concept of testing or moving quick or something like that. So you've spent a lot of time working in and around organizations. What did you see maybe particularly at the Sierra Club that uh, was a great kind of cultural ingredient to embrace testing and optimization? Yeah, I think I think for us, you know, I had very very clear goals coming in in terms of we want to grow. The number one goal was want to grow our audience and we want to grow our number of monthly donors. And uh, you know, at the time mm. there was I think about thirty thousand monthly donors at Sierra Club. There's now wow. over a hundred thousand. Uh, so you know, more than three hundred percent growth in that time. And I think it was like really like figuring out what we could do to move the needle for people. And, you know, people, I did not have a lot of people trying to come up with 15 different goals that we need to achieve. I think it's really getting to that focus. So it's like, we know what our KPI is, what we're actually trying to achieve here. And if we can get to the point of knowing what we're trying to achieve and focus on that, then we can try to do a lot of testing and experimenting Hmm. around it to get those learnings. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. If you're trying to optimize for like eight different things at once, uh, it's pretty difficult. Whereas if you're more, you know, focus on one thing, that makes sense. Um, so why, why don't you think more nonprofits are, are testing? Is it that they're trying to do too much or uh, what, what have you seen that's maybe holding them back? Yeah, I'd say, you know, I think there's kind of internal and external sides to it, right? So externally, I think one of the reasons that not enough of them are testing is, you know, they, they don't see a lot of other nonprofits doing, frankly. So it's kind of a reinforcing side of things. And I think a lot of it is on the agency side, you know, Nonprofit agencies, a lot of them are really focused on ads, really focused on email. They're digital focused. Um, not a lot of them have that heavy technical experience required to do website optimization well. Um, and I think that's where somebody like you know Crow is can be really successful. But you know, I think like in an ideal world, you'd have an agency running digital advertising doing, let's say, your email acquisition campaign. Say, hey, you know, your pages aren't converting at the rates that they should. We should probably be doing some website optimization to get that cost, and that'll help us get the cost per acquisition down. But that kind of skill set and reflex doesn't exist right now because the agencies kind of don't have that track record and experience to do that type of work. And kind of similarly internally, I think a lot of it's that uh, there are lack there there may be email marketing people on staff or something along those lines, but there's a lack of staff that have um, kind of the design or website development side of things, and those things really aren't well budgeted for historically. So the staff resources to actually do that implementation, even if the ideas are there, um, is a lot of times really limited. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, interesting. It's kind of like uh, the irony, right? Is like we don't have the the talent or expertise or resources uh, to test, so then we're just going to kind of keep doing what we're doing kind of blindly, which is kind of a waste of resources, yeah, right? Exactly. And kind of exactly. around and around we go. Um, yeah. And so I, I do think there's, you know, it's shifting slightly and hopefully we're seeing more progress. And the more that people like you do the work that you do and come on shows like this, uh, hopefully it will, it will change a little bit more. Um, was there anything unique at, at Sierra Club beyond the kind of uniform KPIs that you found um, was really good when it came to kind of this, this culture of testing? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it was uh, we we were given um, pre- uh, President Trump was a big kind of turning point in terms of for a lot of organizations to no matter what side of any issue you were on um, in terms of the degree of digital fundraising a lot of other stuff and I think one of the things that Sierra Club did really well is that they gave us a lot of flexibility. And because they gave us flexibility in terms of budgeting in that near term, because digital fundraising is going up so much, we're able to test at speeds that we hadn't been before. 
Um, and so we were able to get learnings a lot, lot quicker because we were raising 10 times the amount of money we'd been raising uh, in previous periods. So I think a lot of what was created was that flexibility for us. And we were able to look at different channels and say, okay, like this, we're doing really well on Messenger. We're, we're doing really well on monthly donor campaigns. We're really doing ads. What does all these things have in common? They're the places where we've been doing the most testing and iteration. Um, and it's kind of like that old adage, why do you rob banks? It's because it's where the money is. And we really found that the things that we were testing the most is where we were getting the most additional revenue. So it just kind of fed into us as we were expanding the team uh, just to have more and more testing built in. Yeah, yeah. The the two words that you use that come up over and over again when, you know, we talk to really successful people when it comes to testing or you listen to talks or, you know, talk about cultural ingredients, but speed and flexibility I mean, especially with with digital and speed and flexibility aren't really words that we use a lot with how nonprofits uh, operate and are structured. Um, but that ability to to try something and have some of that ownership and turn things around quick is you know is paramount. So I'm not surprised to hear that that was there at Sierra. Um, well, I'm sure we could spend all day talking about culture, <laughs> which would, which would be great and and useful. So maybe we'll have you back. But I do want to talk yeah. about a few of uh, case studies or, or examples that you guys had because I think those are really interesting as well. So um, the first one uh, that I want to talk about is where you tested a kind of cover the transaction fee option, where donors, as they were going out throughout the giving process, had that option to kind of check a box and say, "I'd like to." Uh, cover the fee. I'm curious as to what the results are. And then I have a few kind of follow-ups after that. But what what did you learn? Yeah. So overall, um, we found that like almost everybody basically would cover the fee. Um, and it was the, it was, we decided like, I think one of the things that people can get in the way of testing is that they overcomplicate it. We decided rather than a complicated equation, just to say about 3% is our fees and it's a tack on of that 3%. Um, and, you know, really what we found is, is that it was especially impactful on monthly donors uh, because it, it's a low amount. So the 3% doesn't really add that much to the gift. Um, and, you know, it's not 3% of $15, then it's 3% of $15 for a few years. Um, so that's really where we seem to see most of our growth um, from that test. Interesting. Um, one of the things, I mean, we've talked about that internally because there's some platforms that have it by default. And one of the things that I haven't seen, I'd be interested if you saw anything in this experiment. If you don't know, then that's fine. Um, but if it had an impact on the conversion rate or average gift, because I've, I've seen people reference that like 50% of donors will choose to cover the transaction costs or more will. And I don't dispute that. The argument or what I'd be interested in is, does it have a negative impact on average gift where people feel like, well, I'm already paying for transaction fees, so why would I give less? Or does it impact conversion rate? Because each of those things might impact you know, lifetime value and revenue. Absolutely. We did not see a dip in um, average gift. Um, we did see that. We did see like a relevant to the 3% increase in average gift. We did see a slight dip uh, in the in the actual donation rate. It did, it did not cover the 3%, which is, you know, you're kind of making choices in some of this right, testing, totally. but uh, the decrease was smaller than the 3%, which is why we ended up uh, calling it a winner in our case. We at one point did test. So our, our box is not pre-checked. We did check pre-checking that po- box, and that annoyed enough people that it uh, did actually decrease uh, giving an average gift. We actually we even had fewer people check the box ultimately, um, from what I recall. So uh, it annoyed enough people that uh, it was actually negative to do that pre-check box as opposed to that unpre-check box. And, you know, for us, this was a test in uh, 2017. So uh, you know, this was at kind of a peak giving moment for us, and I think it's one of those things that. It's definitely something that may go back to a Sierra Club, you know, in a different time now. 
um, if if that might be a little bit different in terms of its impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting just because, you know, the whole conversation around fees and overhead and what goes on behind the scenes is like a really complicated one. And so then you're introducing fees and maybe they feel better because they're helping – you know, more funds go to the, I'm using air quotes, programs. Yeah. <laughs> but but are you also introducing something that they weren't thinking about? Like, it's a kind of interesting uh, yeah. thing that's tied in. Um, so hopefully more and more people are testing. The other thing that, that you you mentioned there is kind of the, the pre-check. Uh, we see that across multiple experiments, whether it's like a reverse gift array, defaulting into monthly, depending on how it's done. Uh, when we kind of make decisions for donors where it appears to be fairly heavy-handed that almost always has a negative impact on conversion rate. And donors, can they can sniff that stuff out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially I've seen, you know, in anything where there's uh, like a checkbox of, do you want to receive emails from us? Having that as a pre-check box. I mean, honestly, most tests, the you're better off hiding it, honestly, uh, as a thing if you have to do the three. Like some people don't quite realize that uh, that even giving people the option makes them less likely yeah. to complete the form because right. it kind of gives them that awareness of, oh yeah, I might, be, <laughs> I might get a lot of emails from these people after this. Um, and right. kind of the same goes with phone number where if you kind of make people aware of that phone number side of things with or without a checkbox. Um, that doesn't mean that groups shouldn't, you know, default to, to in some cases having an unchecked box because you know that's how they want to treat their audience um but definitely if you're ju- if you're looking purely at conversion rate um hiding a lot of those checkbox options is the way to go yeah and we'll just create some anxiety right like with phone like are you gonna call me at night like i don't know how right. you're gonna <laughs> right. use my phone number so right. now i'm kind of freaked right. out about it right what time zone are you on what time zone am, <laughs> right. am i on uh if i'm in hawaii am i gonna get woken up at 6 a.m by somebody right exactly <laughs> exactly well that was a that was an interesting one um Another one that I saw was kind of a two-step email capture test. Can you actually just kind of explain that a little bit and then like why you te- what it is, why you tested it, and what the outcome yeah, was? Yeah, sure. So this is primarily for advocacy actions that are going to Congress. And um, most congressional forms, if you're writing an elected official, um, they require full address information. So that's name, email, mailing address, phone number. So basically the works. Uh, and, they, and really what we see is we saw it if we had f- forms that only had a few fields where it wasn't going to an elected official and some other t- use case, those were having higher conversion rates. Or, so our question was, okay, how can we increase the conversion rates on this field form that seems really overwhelming to people and like really, really need all this information from me? But yes, that's what Congress requires. Uh, so what we did is we kind of broke it up into two steps. The first step had name, email, uh, and zip code, um, because we use zip code a lot for uh, being able to geo-target different actions over time. Um, and the second field, second page had address and phone number. Um, and by splitting those up into a step one and a step two, uh, we increased by almost 20% the email capture on step one. Um, and then on step two, we actually saw a slight net increase in advocacy action submitted. Uh, we saw a slight decrease on mobile, which I think we kind of see across the board that sometimes multi-step can hurt a little bit in some cases on mobile just because clicking and load times are a little bit different. Um, but overall, it increased both email by 20% and then have that net advocacy uh, increase. And in subsequent variants, what we really found is that the phone number field is the real catch for people, kind of like we were talking about before. Um, so we actually found that over time, if we, uh, if for people that we already have a phone number for, if we hide the phone number field and just have it pre-filled so they don't have to worry about it, that increases their submission rates even more, even though we already had it and it's already a pre-filled form. So you know, we've really tested into 
um, having a two-step form for people that are kind of not pre-filled and kind of simplifying that form a little bit uh, for people who, you know, are already on your email list. We've already captured their information. Cool. Uh, and are there some other uh, areas or implications where you think you can translate this concept of, of two-step where maybe it's not intuitive? Like, why wouldn't you just have it in one step where two steps actually yeah. better? Are there, are there other ways where we can use that? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly on donation forms, you see a lot of multi-step donation forms at this point, and they're kind of driving across similar things. Um, if you have online stores, trying to get that information capture of email address early is really key because all these things allow you to retarget people if they don't convert immediately, if they abandon, which may be intentional or may be a mistake. You know, things that allow people to get back into that process is really critical. Um, and you know, we also do it with uh, surveys that we're doing of our audience. Um, so you know, we're figuring out what issues people care about. Uh, you can take uh, survey fields, kind of have one question, one question, one question, instead of having 10 questions all at once and it starts to look overwhelming. And of all of those types of cases, we're really seeing that simplified approach is really um, getting, giving people only one thing to worry about at a time uh, gets them going to more things. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's great. Uh, the question we get asked a lot is on donation pages, you know, like what's what's better, one step, two step? And the answer is always like, well, it kind of depends how you do it because some organizations have a great, simple, easy two-step process where they capture some information, capture just a little bit more information and you're done, right? Quick load time, all that kind of stuff. Other organizations have a terrible two-step process, right? <laughs> and then some have like, are you sure you want to give page, which is like a confirmation page that serves no purpose. And so it's not just the number of steps, right? It's kind of like how we do it. Similarly, like defaulting donors into something, we'll talk about recurring in a second. It's not just defaulting the decision. It's a lot of it's in actually how you go about doing it. And so that's what's, you know, tough on on the client teaching side, or I mean, we do a lot of the teaching side is like, we have to say, generally speaking, or like, on average, most of the time, you know, we, we don't want to just leave people with, oh, it depends and test it because that's not super useful for them day to day. But at the same time, there's a huge difference between someone's two-step and someone else's two-step, right? Yeah, totally. And especially, you know, as mobile adoption rates have gotten higher and higher, the, all the load time stuff that you're talking about, those sorts of things, they're more and more of an equation when people, you know, maybe on spotty service, they're not on their, uh, you know, their, their lightning quick internet speed that they might have at home. So all of those things play into whether or not that two-step is going to be helpful or if it's going to hurt you. Right, right. Cool. So uh, I mentioned recurring. Uh, I, you guys have spent uh, a lot of time focused on recurring giving. I mean, you just mentioned there how it was the main goal and how you over-tripled it. Um, you did a, a few different experiments. And, and uh, one of them was that what I was just talking about, where you kind of, instead of having one time and then people had the option to kind of click into monthly, uh, you kind of just defaulted into monthly. Is that an experiment that you ran? And can you share a little bit more about how that yeah. went? Yeah, we, 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 that's an experiment that we've basically run on every every channel um, and to every audience in different forms. And so this is this is a monthly donation form that doesn't have a checkbox or anything. It's, it's clear at the top, this is a monthly gift. Um, and it's clear when you're in your asterisk that it's a monthly gift. Um, but we basically tested one time versus monthly across every channel. So email, Facebook ads, search ads, organic website traffic, SMS, uh, backend on petitions, and in Facebook Messenger, um, and, uh, and tested prospect audiences and existing donor audiences. So really kind of tried to run the gamut to figure out who we should do what with. And really what we found is that any audience where we're doing a push, um, so whether that's email or Facebook ads or SMS or Messenger, where you know they didn't wake up that day deciding I'm going to donate to to Sierra Club. In those in those channels, we we're better off for asking people to give monthly. 
Um, they, those people did not come in with an intent. Um, and in some cases, we would see as high as 80% of people who would say yes to a one-time gift would also say yes to a monthly gift. Um, at Sierra Club, we valued a monthly donor at $500 and a one-time gift uh, an email at about $50. So 10x the long-term revenue for with 80% of people saying yes. It's a pretty easy decision to make. Um, the cases where we saw it lose uh, were primarily search ads um, and organic website traffic. And those are places where, you know, if you're searching a nonprofit name and then donate, uh, and then you get an ad for that organization, you had a little bit of intent uh, to give there. And that's what a lot of search ads are. And same with organic website traffic. Uh, it's a very similar situation. So what we saw in both of those cases is, you know, those people were probably maybe coming in because they got a mail piece, something else happened. They were coming in with the intention of, I'm going to donate fifty or a thousand dollars to Sierra Club today, um, and those people were better off just giving them the one-time ask. And part of that was intent. Another part of it is average gift. Um, our average the average gift of organic website gifts is, depending on the organization, it can be like two to five x uh, an email gift. Um, so, kind of factoring that into your equation is really important. Yeah, and, and what's so so great about this uh, is you need different strategies and donation pages based on different visitors. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like online, maybe not one hundred one, but two. 201, right? right? And it, it makes sense. If someone's seeking you out, Googling or searching, they have some innate desire that is strong enough for, to, for them to go out and seek you out. Yeah. And that's where, you know, we've tested sometimes an open field for these types of folks or return donors who kind of know us, who get us. Let's, let's not anchor them to 75 bucks because who knows, maybe they're willing to make a real large donation. But for people that, like you said, come from an ad, come from an email, and you're kind of pushing there with your own marketing. Well, that's a different type of kind of experience and you can do different types of things. So, uh, A, it's really cool that, you know, you tested that but with caveats because it's not just a blind test like, you know, we did this for all people and it worked at all times. Like there are caveats to what works or what doesn't work. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think like, you know, to your point in terms of the uh, intent, and I think like some of this, some of this ends up being a little counterintuitive. You know, we, uh, we actually saw that prospects, uh, it's better to ask them for a monthly gift than a one-time gift, relatively speaking. Um, that, you know, yes, they're less likely to convert overall, but relative willingness to become a monthly donor versus a one-time donor is actually closer. And it kind of gets to what you're saying about, you know, the people that are existing donors, they, they kind of have that existing intent a little bit. If you've been renewing your $15 Sierra Club membership for 35 years, um, you know, it's a big change for you to suddenly switch out your giving style. You're, you're used to kind of being locked into that membership. Right. Uh, so for those kind of donors that are maybe coming to the general donation page or maybe don't have that, um, they're not being directed around monthly. One of the other things that you tested were kind of these nudge arrows and even some social proof to kind of mention maybe like, hey, have you have you thought about recurring? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think this is really interesting. We've done a lot of research in the past year and a half about how organizations are or aren't communicating the recurring value proposition. And this is one of the things that you and a few others we saw, and we didn't know if it worked. So tell us, yeah. does it work? Does it <laughs> yeah, work? <I'll> talk. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like it's honestly, in a lot of ways, become our default. If we can't think of anything to do to, to drive something, hey, let's just add a nudge arrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and that's really been the case, whether it's the donation forms, peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, uh, higher bar advocacy actions. Like, in general, I think it's things that are that slightly higher bar that we're trying to get people out of. So, like, with the advocacy actions, it can sometimes be, like, instead of just sending this, like, unpersonalized message, hey, like, write your own individualized letter to somebody. Um, and uh, so getting people things that are doing that, slight, that slightly higher bar and like 
may, maybe like they need that little extra nudge. And that's kind of what that arrow is. It's that extra nudge. Um, the first arrow that we tried in a test was uh, social proof on monthly donors. Uh, and it was that most people are giving $20 right now. Um, that was our most popular gift, but our average gift was actually slightly lower. Um, and, uh, and what we found is that not only did it cause more people to give uh, $20, it increased that amount 55%, but it increased the, actually increased the total number of people giving on the form, which was kind of a, a nice positive side effect. So it didn't just create the idea that people give $20. There's also the idea that, oh, people give. Um, and so it, it increased donations on the page overall by about 30%. Um, and yeah, and so like when we've thought about it and other stuff, we've kind of gotten into now, uh, in addition to dollar amounts, we've started nudging in terms of counts. So like saying that, uh, if you look at our monthly donor form today, it kind of couples that $20 amount with a, with the social proof of count. And it says, uh, a hundred thousand people have already signed up to become monthly donors. Most are giving $20 right now. So kind of both that social pressure of amount and also that kind of joiner aspect of, uh, just how many people are doing this. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about this is, is that it's applying kind of more academic research, I guess, on what we know about things like social proof and how we're wired and social influence and just applying it to a donation page. Like donors will tell you, oh, I don't really care what other people give. But like <laughs> we've seen these studies in academia where you just tell them that the person before them gave $300 and they'll give 29% more than they would if they didn't hear that. They have no idea who that person is or if you're telling the truth or not. They're just like, <laughs> you know, crap. Oh, they gave $300. Well, I, I better give a little bit more. Like we are so socially wired and connected and we can't even articulate it. That totally. stuff makes a big difference, right? Yeah, to totally. To your last point, my real hope when it said most people gave $20 is that the $25 gift was going to yeah. go up a lot. So that everybody, everybody wanted to give a little bit more than everybody else. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think like with a lot of this stuff, it, it comes down to the fact that like, people, people really want don't are, it's kind of scary to go out on a limb in a lot of these things, whether that's donating or like calling your senator like that's that's kind of a scary thing for people to do um and you know i think a lot of people for a lot of different reasons are kind of feeling a little lonely in the world uh and a little isolated so making people feel like they're a part of something and that together they can make a difference like that's a really powerful thing that hopefully we can tap into do you think there's any um concern or any point where that number if it's too large it could actually be demotivating because, uh, you know, I think it works really well in general, but also for Sierra Club because it's really like, you know, membership, movement. It's part of kind of who your donor is and the language that you use. But we've seen uh, other experiments where like the collective we actually decreases giving because it kind of alleviates the responsibility. Yeah. So, you know, maybe someone sees us and go like, man, you got 100,000 people. Like, what do you need my yeah. 20 bucks for? You know, yeah. do, is that a concern? Does that enter into the conversation at all? It's definitely a conversation I've had a lot of times, and I think like I'm yet to I'm yet to have good data either way. I would say um, when I've when I've looked at it, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the scale of the problem. Like you know, mm, if you saw a there's a you know that hey there's a park in our neighborhood and we need to have a park bench <laughs> right. uh, in that park, and that park bench has raised five hundred thousand dollars. I probably don't need to donate to to build a park right. bench, um, but you know <laughs> if the problem is like. Uh, the AIDS epidemic or like something you know, massive, hunger, right? That's a good world, point. Like then that joiner aspect, I think starts to be really different. Um, and it's like, 
it's actually kind of the inverse of like, is $5 really going to make a difference in this global yeah. problem? No, but that, you know, $10 million that we're raising together. Yes, I can see how that makes an impact. Yeah. No, that, that's a great point. And uh, this is what's so cool about uh, testing, right? Is the, the more that you test in different areas, uh, I think the more that you can actually decode why people do what they do so that it's not like, oh, on my monthly donation page, I must use a nudge arrow and social proof. I mean, maybe, <laughs> but what does that show us about what donors uh, what do we learn about donors? One, they're socially wired and connected. So the more that we can show what peers do, the more likely they are to take that type of action. And two, they need some kind of clarity and encouragement on what they should be doing. Again, like we've seen where you just say, please fill out the form below and you increase conversion rate. Like it's, it's, it's obvious you got to fill out the form. The form's there. But just, yeah. just by telling them, it just helps that little bit extra, right? And that's what the nudge is saying. Like, hey, this is actually a great way to do it. So the more that we can learn that, the more this can apply to all kinds of different things, our galas, our direct mail, we can apply those types of things. That's why, you know, the culture and testing environment that you guys have done at Sierra and that you're working now with Crow, is what, that's what's so cool is we can actually start to, you know, decode why the people do the things that they do and apply them in other ways. Yeah. And I think it's exciting because, you know, at the end of the day, people are people and like, you know, they're they're not, yes, they may interact a little bit differently online than in the real world, but like the lessons are are always going to be able to cross between channels because, because that's, that's just human nature. Yeah. All right. So one more and then, uh, and then we can move on. (laughs) Um, Okay. Sounds good. uh, You guys did a homepage test where you basically just moved up um, kind of action components, things that people could do above the kind of classic, here's who we are kind of about us. Uh, what kind of impact did that have? And was that a hard test to convince, you know, bosses and colleagues to do? <laughs> I think we're very lucky in that uh, we have a team that's open to testing. Um, and uh, so you know, honestly, like we haven't, when I talk to other people about how much convincing I had to do to get test live, there's, there's oftentimes a lot of frustration um, in that, that other people don't have it that easy. Um, so I recognize how lucky uh, to be at, it was to be at Sierra Club where that was just part of the culture. Um, you know, overall, like, I think the getting that action stuff up um, did increase engagement rates. It increased uh, across the site. And I think, like, what it really, I think, drives to is, like, your action content is often better about us than your about us content. Yeah. Uh, you know, because actions speak louder than words. That's yeah, a good point. Kind of cliche to say at this point. Um, you know, I don't have to tell you that we're living in a news cycle where you're lucky if, if like huh. a story that people care about lasts a day. <laughs> right. Um, and you know, nonprofit supporters are living in that news cycle every day too. So you know, odds are when they're going to their website the day after, let's say the day after a hurricane hits and they're thinking about the people being impacted in that hurricane. So like, what's more powerful, like saying we're an organization that helps people or saying, Hey, we're helping people with hurricane recovery. You can help people like this right now. You're giving that audience that tangible understanding that you're really doing stuff that they crave, giving them something to be a part of. So I think as much as possible, like I try to help think about organizations trying to rethink what about us is and the degree to which about us is really less what you say you're doing and what you really are doing and making that front and center. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. It's also kind of, we get it backwards, I think, often where we think that people can like get educated into taking action or if they just knew the facts, then they would then make an action. And that's what they'll tell you, right? Just give me the facts. But we we know that especially giving such an emotionally driven thing. So even just showing an action, then they may seek out the about us so that they feel better about, you know, this organization's legit and they're trustworthy. And But rarely can you educate someone and inform someone into taking these types of actions that we're often trying to do. So it makes sense to structure the homepage, kind of how yeah. most people make their decisions. 
Yeah, and and I think yeah, and I think the other aspect of that too that really really seem to be seeing increasingly is that people are less tied to like an individual organization in the same way. Like you know, my, if yeah. I think about my grandparents, they they donated to the same five organizations um, that you could probably guess um, for. Uh, for you know 50 years and you know now i think you see you know when a moment in the news cycle it might happen mm-hmm. there's suddenly like an organization that pops up that's in the news cycle for for a week or, or maybe a little less or maybe a month at the most yeah and then they're kind of there and they're maybe gone a little bit yeah but people are kind of less into that kind of longevity with an individual organization and more into like what is this issue and cause i care about yeah. and kind of aligning themselves a little bit more with that yeah i know for sure and and that's what i think makes a recurring giving so interesting because yeah. it's just it's <laughs> rising in importance because it's not what people are doing just out of you know here's my check every year i worked for an organization where every year we'd get the same check on the same date from the same person you know like no <laughs> one's doing that anymore for the most yeah. part yeah yeah that's absolutely right because i think like when i think about from the you know from the monthly donor side again like when people are in that moment they really care about that issue passionately because it's in the news cycle you know that's the moment they're going to care most about it um probably in their lives and so if you can get them to be captured as a monthly donor at that peak moment of engagement they're not going to be more likely to become a monthly donor in the future the time that they're most likely to become a monthly donor is right now yeah yeah and again that's maybe a little counterintuitive or what people haven't been thinking but you know 2017 uh was the first year where um New one, uh, new recurring donors surpassed the upgrade strategy, kind oh, of by and large. And I mean, a lot of it's how we buy things, right? More and more people buy subscription, so it makes sense that that would carry over to our charitable giving. But again, it makes the stuff that you're doing in terms of defaults and nudges to recurring even more important because we have a consumer base, young and old, that are a lot more interested in doing that. And while you have them on your site because it's so competitive, you know, how do you make the most of that interaction because they may leave and then, you know, never come back. So Right. Yeah. And we haven't touched on it at all, but like the degree to which email has been falling off as a channel, like it's still hugely impactful, um, but it is less response rates than it's been in a year in the past. And so like things that are think it's only the importance of recurring donors is likely only going to increase yeah, no, over time. Totally. Well, maybe we should have you back on to talk about email because I've got a theory that it's de- email hygiene is crippling our, our rates and how poor our our email I hygiene love, is. I would love to talk to you about that. <laughs> uh, yes. Anyway, we'll, we'll, have you, we'll have you back on and maybe that'll just be like Sounds a vent good. session. We'll just crack a beer and, <laughs> and talk about email hygiene. Um, Okay, on on the way out, any kind of quick ideas or experiments, or you know, you've you've done a lot of these. If someone's listening and they're like, "Man, those are a lot of ideas," like, what's what's one thing that I could kind of test or take away? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that people can do to take away is figure out, like, try to figure out how much a monthly donor is worth to your organization and and how how that relates to your one time giving. You know, at Sierra Club, we were able to figure out that it was about ten x, and that can really drive your program a lot because you know a lot of tests where you're maybe you know adding or dropping a field maybe you're getting five ten percent at a time but if you can get people to become a monthly donor instead of a one-time donor in a channel that can be 5x or 10x the revenue so try to get to that kind of data point if possible um, and then try to play around with the degree to which you can push more people into monthly giving that's where you're likely to see the most value overall awesome that's great well thanks so much for taking the time and sharing about these experiments um, where can people find out more about uh, you sierra and crow 
Yeah, so Sierra Club's website is sierraclub.org. Uh, and uh, yeah, a whole bunch of information there about their work. Um, and then on the Chrometric side of things, that is crometrics.com. Um, so you can see you know, the types of clients that we've worked with, the types of work that we've done, and you know, kind of learn more and figure out if, hey, you know, I, I'm, if you're interested in figuring out if uh, you know, it could be a fit to do more testing in your program, uh, would love to talk. Awesome. Thanks, and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.